G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. I'm really hoping that this recording comes out well because it's now the second time that I've had to record this episode due to technical issues and I'm also dealing with COVID so you'll have to excuse my voice. Um, But we got there in the end I think. Hopefully this isn't too bad. Uh, Again, my apologies for the sound quality and uh yeah we'll try and get on top of those things as we go but first i have to get better and uh yeah hopefully you'll enjoy this episode it's a bit of a long one it's a bit of a a super-sized episode we've got two giant questions to answer at the end of our study for today and uh yeah let's get on with the show today we're going to have a look at the conversation that occurs between the woman and the serpent we already tackled the first verse of our reading last time on the show, but for the sake of clarity, we'll start again at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll go through to verse 5. So here's the reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's kind of funny how this is such an essential passage for for us Christians, but so many of us are really confused by it. Yeah, hopefully today we can alleviate some of the confusion. Now, as I mentioned, we did already look at verse 1 last time, and we talked about the question that the serpent asks, to see if he can find any holes in the armour of the woman's understanding of God's commandment. Now we're going to have a look at the whole dialogue and see what's going on. We didn't talk about it last week, but there is another way to read verse 1, which suggests that perhaps the serpent was not asking a question. Instead, he was about to make some kind of a statement to the woman, but she interrupts him halfway through. So he starts with something like, even though God said that you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden, And then Eve cuts him off by insisting that they can indeed eat from the trees, just not that particular one. So in that scenario, I think what might be going on there is that the serpent is making a claim to be the authority over the other trees of the garden. He's waiting for Eve to say, oh, really, we can't eat from the trees of the garden? And then the serpent's going to say, well, I'll tell you what you can do. And I can say this because I'm in charge. You can eat from this tree. And, you know, in that way, he's going to sort of play against what God had said. But anyway, that's speculative. Um, I'm not sure that there is any particular significance to either alternative as opposed to the other. But I thought it was interesting, and it would be a fair guess to say that most people didn't even know that there was potentially a different way to read that verse. Uh, Robert Alter lays it out that way in his translation. Anyway, however you read it, I think you'd have to agree that the effect achieved by the serpent's words is to cause the woman to push back against the accusatory tone that the serpent employs. Now, we need to start talking about the imagery in use here in the story. I'm not going to go back and explain all the stuff that we talked about in Season 2 concerning the way that the different elements of this story are portrayed, and I'm talking specifically here about the nature of the trees in the Garden of Eden, but I want you to be mindful of it. And I will remind listeners that there really is nothing in this text that would give us any legitimate grounds to take a sexually oriented view 
of the nature of these discussions and activities in the garden. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we talked about that in episode 11 of our second season. To put it simply, the trees are a metaphor by which we are meant to understand the other divine beings that exist in the garden, and by extension, their fruit would represent the good things that they had to offer humankind, which according to tradition, would be the impartation of wisdom and instruction in the ways of God. Some might object to the use of metaphor in the story on the basis that if some part is metaphorical, then what about the rest of it? And if it's not meant to be taken literally, then was there a literal fall and a literal sin that led to death for all mankind? And if we can't take that literally, then what about the sacrifice of Christ? And what is the state of mankind if there never was a real salvation for our sins? We're all going to die. We have to take it literally. You hear this kind of thing all the time, particularly from the fundamentalist crowd, but it really is a serious overreaction and an objection that hasn't been well thought out because it doesn't take into account literary considerations. I want to make the point too that um, reading scripture in light of later theology is potentially dangerous. There's no point in reading Genesis 3 and saying, well, it has to say this because if it doesn't, that undermines my understanding of Christian theology uh, in the light of Jesus, right? Because when you do that, uh, what you've done is you've disregarded the original text uh, as having any meaning for its original audience. And of course, it had to have meaning to them for the things that build on it to have any value of their own. So if you want to preserve the significance of everything that Jesus Christ has done, you can't undermine the foundation that he was building on. And that's why you can't just go, well, you know, if, if I don't understand Genesis 3 uh, in light of Jesus, then, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. Right? That's, that's really reverse engineering the text, and we can't do that. We've already addressed the fact that what we're reading is an account of mythic history. It's a work of literature designed to convey meaning to its audience. This is not some kind of a modern historical work that aims to present all of the data from all sides as if to remove objectivity and present to us an, observ an observation without an observer or the view from nowhere. This isn't science, and if you were standing there observing what was going on in the Garden of Eden, there really is no telling what you would have seen with your own eyes, but I would be willing to bet that it wouldn't be a naked woman having a conversation about fruit with a talking snake. We need to be content to let the literature speak to us without abusing it according to our modern paradigms. We need to remember that the biblical view is that the words of scripture are God's words even though they were written by men. So if God uses human authors who employ metaphor or allegory or any other kind of writing, we simply need to remain faithful to the rules of interpretation of that text in order to receive what God is telling us. These are ancient people using common literary motifs that were well understood in the context in which they were used. And it was well understood that the best way to communicate abstract truths is to present them as concrete realities. That doesn't mean that the only thing that matters is the principle or the idea. What it means is that something too wonderful to describe, too glorious to imagine, and too far removed from the common experience of the average ancient Israelite still has to be put down in words that they can relate to. Because they're telling us a real story that really matters. Unfortunately, it seems that our modern proclivities demand that the only acceptable truth is a literal, concrete, factual reality devoid of artistic expression or perspective. We need to remember that just as we saw the man as an archetype of humanity, we are reading an archetypal story, so that's going to influence the way we read the whole thing, not just our interpretation of the man. 
I mentioned in a recent episode that the writers of the New Testament viewed Adam and Eve as archetypes with relation to the story of the fallen man. And I didn't go into it, but I mentioned that there were authors in the Second Temple period who were making that connection long before the New Testament authors picked it up. So I've got some examples because I want you to see the legitimacy of this and how the idea passes from Genesis 3 into the New Testament, despite the fact that there is no place in the Old Testament where anyone picks up the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent as having any connection to the origin of sin. So I'll read a few of these and give you a few comments on each. Obviously the disclaimer here is that these are not biblical canon and not to be treated as such. But we're all adults here, I think we can listen to what these texts have to say about the background of the New Testament use of these ideas without falling into heresy. The first one is Ben Sirah, or Wisdom of Sirach. You may also find it called Ecclesiasticus. This is early 2nd century BC, written by a Jewish scribe named Yeshua Ben Sirah. Sirach 25, verse 13-16 Give me any plague but the plague of the heart, and any wickedness but the wickedness of a woman, and any affliction but the affliction from them that hate me, and any revenge but the revenge of enemies. There is no head above the head of a serpent, and there is no wrath above the wrath of an enemy. I would rather dwell with a lion and a dragon than to keep house with a wicked woman. So this text appears to take a pretty low view of women. But when we consider the way that the author is using Genesis 3, we can understand that this is not supposed to be a general view, but rather taken in the context of the Genesis 3 narrative. So he's not a woman hater. But he does want to draw attention to the connection between the woman as an archetype, and the origin of sin and the death that results from it. First he does this by associating her with cosmic enemies of God and his people, and we saw that with the serpent and the lion and the dragon. And these are all images of the cosmic enemies of God that we find in both the Old and the New Testaments, but then later in the chapter, the author just comes right out with it and is very explicit. In Sirach 25, verse 24, Of the woman came the beginning of sin, and through her we all die. So in the mind of Ben Sirah, the origin of sin came through the woman, with the result being that all humanity is subject to death. He does not elaborate on the nature of that death, nor does he state anything about the transmission of sin. So he's not saying that we're born with a sinful nature, or that sin becomes genetic, or anything like that. It's just the fact that she sinned which has brought about death for all of us. There's no talk about guilt here. But when he says, through her we all die, it's easy to see the archetypal nature of this image. She was first, and we all have done likewise. Here's another one. This is 4th Ezra, or you may also find it referred to as 2nd Esdras. This one is an apocalyptic book, as opposed to Ben Sirah, which was in the genre of wisdom literature. The book is pseudepigraphical, in that it is claimed to have been written by the biblical scribe Ezra, who lived in the 5th century BC but it is quite obvious that the text itself dates very late in the 1st century AD, and possibly as late as the early 3rd century in parts. In any case, we're talking about a date after the destruction of the 2nd temple in AD 70. So this is 4th Ezra, chapter 3, verse 21. For the first Adam, bearing a wicked heart, transgressed, and was overcome, and so be all they that are born of him. And in 326... And in all things did even as Adam and all his generations had done, for they also had a wicked heart. And in 4 verse 30, For the grain of evil seed hath been sown in the heart of Adam from the beginning, and how much ungodliness hath it brought up unto this time, and how much shall it yet bring forth until the time of threshing come. So you can see here, 
the way that these stories from the primeval history are already being brought forward into these apocalyptic end times visions, where the beginning of all these things comes to its natural conclusion. 4th Ezra chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. And I said, It is so, Lord. Then he said unto me, Even so also is Israel's portion. Because for their sakes I made the world. And when Adam transgressed my statutes, then was decreed, That now is done. Then were the entrances of this world made narrow, full of sorrow and travail. They are but few and evil, full of perils and very painful. For the entrances of the elder world were wide and sure and brought immortal fruit. I just want to say something quickly about these entrances that I mentioned in the text, because I'm sure that people are hearing that and picking up on it and going, ooh, look, it's dimensional portals, it's stargates and dimensional rifts and that kind of stuff. And I'm just going to knock that right on the head now and say, no. Look at the words of Jesus when he talks about the narrow gate and the wide road. He's talking about the way that people go in their life, whether they choose good or evil, and how easy it is or how difficult it may be to travel those paths. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense, actually. You know, you tell yourself you're not going to go on another rant about people reading science fiction in the Bible, and then it happens anyway. When will we ever learn? So we had the immortal fruit there, which was a reference to the Tree of Life. It's pretty clear from this text that Adam is in view as the archetype and originator of sin. Perhaps less obvious is the idea that he had what the author calls a wicked heart. He doesn't say that God created him with a wicked heart, nor does he say that Adam was made perfect and then became wicked. It's just the way he is, and no explanation is offered for the origin of the wickedness of Adam. Note also that he is called the first Adam. So again, we have this archetypal view, and it goes on. This is chapter 7, verses 46 to 58. I answered then and said, This is my first and last saying, that it had been better not to have given the earth unto Adam, or else when it was given him, to have restrained him from sinning. For what profit is it for men now in this present time to live in heaviness, and after death to look for punishment? O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For though it was thou that sinned, thou art not fallen alone, but we all that come of thee. For what profit is it unto us, if there be promised us an immortal time, whereas we have done the works that bring death, and that there is promised us an everlasting hope, whereas ourselves, being most wicked, are made vain, and that there are laid up for us dwellings of health and safety, whereas we have lived wickedly, and that the glory of the Most High is kept to defend them which have led a weary life, whereas we have walked in the most wicked ways of all, and that there should be showed a paradise whose fruit endureth forever, wherein is security and medicine, since we shall not enter into it for we have walked in unpleasant places. And that the faces of them which have used abstinence shall shine above the stars, whereas our faces shall be blacker than darkness. For while we lived and committed iniquity, we considered not that we should begin to suffer for it after death. Then answered he me, and said, This is the condition of the battle, which man that is born upon the earth shall fight, that if he be overcome, he shall suffer as thou hast said, but if he get the victory, he shall receive the thing that I say. And so here we have laid out the problem of evil and the hope of the righteous. Now I'm going to read some passages from 2nd Baruch. Again, 2nd Baruch is an apocalyptic, pseudepigraphical writing, late in the 1st century or early 2nd century AD. So this is 2nd Baruch, chapter 17, verses 2 to 3. For what did it profit Adam, 
that he lived 930 years and transgressed that which he was commanded. Therefore the multitude of time that he lived did not profit him, but it brought death and cut off the years of those who were born from him. In chapter 23, verses 4 to 7, For when Adam sinned and death was decreed against those who were to be born, the multitude of those who would be born was numbered. And for that number a place was prepared where the living ones might live and where the dead might be preserved. No creature will live again unless the number that has been appointed is completed. For my spirit creates the living, and the realm of death receives the dead. And further it is given to you to hear that which will come after these times. For truly, my salvation, which comes, has drawn near, and is not as far away as before. And there the word for salvation is Yeshua. Second Baruch chapter 48, verses 42 to 43. And I answered and said, O Adam, what did you do to all who were born after you? And what will be said of the first Eve who obeyed the serpent, so that this whole multitude is going to corruption? And countless are those whom the fire devours. And in Second Baruch 48, verse 46, For you commanded the dust one day to produce Adam, and you knew the number of those who were born from him, and how they sinned before you, those who existed, and who did not recognize you as their creator. In chapter 54, verses 15 to 19, For although Adam sinned first, and has brought death upon all who were not in his own time, yet each of them who has been born from him has prepared for himself the coming torment, and further, each of them has chosen for himself the coming splendor. For truly the one who believes will receive reward. But now turn yourselves to destruction, you unrighteous ones who are living now, for you will be visited suddenly, since you have once rejected the understanding of Yahweh the Most High. For his works have not taught you, nor has the artful work of his creation, which has existed always, persuaded you. Adam is, therefore, not the cause, except only for himself. But each of us has become our own Adam. So it should be quite clear by now, and I hope you've noticed, that all of these authors talk about inherited death, but not inherited guilt, or even inherited sin. What that tells us is that the simple nature that we often hear talk about in Christian circles is not inherited from Adam. It's actually natural to us. And that might shock some of you realizing this for the first time, but that's why in this last season of the podcast, for those who came in late, we talked about the creation of man as simply God choosing a man to be his representative. He was chosen from the dust, and as we explained before, that means that he was chosen from an innumerable multitude that are indistinct from one another. Adam was not unique or different or special. He was just chosen by God and given a special function and a role to play as a representative of God toward mankind. Perhaps that explains the somewhat sympathetic tone that many authors seem to take toward Adam. Nobody vilifies him, even though he bears the primary responsibility. In choosing Adam, God approached mankind with the provision of everlasting life and the means to be raised up in glory beyond his mere fleshly state through participation in covenant with God to do the works of God on earth. And yet somehow mankind has always desired to return to the fleshly multitude, follow the desires of the flesh, bear no responsibility, and risk no glory. Here's a quick snippet from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is from the Community Rule document, which was found in Cave 1 at Qumran. It dates to early in the 2nd century BC. The reference is 1QS 
column 11, lines 21 to 22, and here's the quote. What shall one born of woman be accounted before thee? Kneaded from the dust, his abode is the nourishment of worms. He is but a shape, but moulded clay, and inclines toward dust. So again, we have the use of dust representing mankind in general, or our representation in the first man who was formed from the dust according to Genesis 2. Note that the author has no problem speaking in terms of either dust or clay. But in particular, the point here is that the inclination of man according to this text is to return to the dust. That's really profound. It doesn't just speak about all of us. It really speaks to our hearts into the state of mankind on a human level. Okay, so that wraps up our wild rabbit trail off into the world of Second Temple Period literature. But I hope that these readings have made it clear to you that the authors of the New Testament were not inventing new things when they chose to read the story of Adam and Eve as being archetypal. And what that means is that we can afford to have some flexibility when we talk about elements in the story, and we don't need them to be concrete realities that are scientifically verifiable in the laboratory. And I say that because we're starting to see now that Perhaps this divine rebel is a serpent and perhaps he is a tree and it really depends on the purposes of the author as to how he's going to describe him. Getting back to Genesis 2 and 3 now, let's try to do justice to this text by simply reading it and understanding it as a work of literature. The garden is a place where food can be found without effort, where one can walk side by side with the king and where the many subordinate officials would meet and can be approached for the benefit of their advice. Naturally, a garden is full of fruit-bearing trees so the trees come to represent these officials, the lesser Elohim, that surround the majestic king of all kings, the creator Yahweh Elohim. And the man and his wife are blessed to have the privilege of divine audience, and a place among the trees of the garden in the divine courtroom. As such, the wisdom of the gods has been made available to them. And the tree of life, which is the closest we get to some kind of a representation of the presence of God himself, is in the middle of the garden, alongside the one forbidden tree, which is of course the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've talked before about the meaning of that phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, which is meant to convey the idea of a complete understanding of everything or a kind of supreme wisdom only achieved by the most ancient and very wisest of all beings. It's the power to make judgment and to determine destiny. It is to this one tree that the attention of the woman gravitates, and we can see that in her own words as she speaks of it as the tree in the middle of the garden, apparently disregarding the other tree in the middle of the garden, which, as I mentioned, is about as close as we can get to some kind of a representation of God's manifest presence. The woman in this conversation with the serpent has revealed that her attention was focused on what was prohibited rather than what had been freely offered. Not only that, but we also notice that she has taken the prohibition one step further because she now appears to believe that she is also forbidden to even touch this tree. I might just mention that the verb for touching that we find here is intended to convey a quite deliberate and intentional action, which is not something that you might do by accident. So the woman is not concerned that she might accidentally brush against the tree and be put to death for it. Nevertheless, her statement reeks of resentment. Another interesting feature of the text here is the way that the Hebrew sentence structure works with regard to the subject of verbs. I think I've mentioned this before back in season one. There are occasions where a close reading of the text reveals that the verb in the first part of the sentence refers to the first object in the sentence, and that's followed by the introduction of a second object and a second verb, which is associated with it. That means that the focus of the sentence has shifted from the first verb to the second, and what follows the sentence will be logically connected to the verb in the second part of that first sentence, rather than going back to the first part of it. 
And you might be thinking, yeah, thanks for that, TJ, you nerd. I have no idea what that means. So let's break it down. See if you can spot the place where we stop talking about the first verb and we start talking about the second one. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, you might have picked up on the fact that verse 2 and the first half of verse 3 is all concerned with this idea of eating the fruit, but then in the second part of verse 3, the focus shifts to touching the fruit. So when the serpent responds by saying you will not surely die, he's responding to the notion of death by touching the fruit. According to this reading, the serpent is not speaking a falsehood, but he certainly is setting the stage for his great deception. This understanding of the text is not the way that it has been traditionally preserved, however. In the Masoretic text, the arrangement of punctuation, that does not feature in the original manuscripts, in verse 4, would have us read the serpent's words as, Not dying being, you shall die. And if we use the word order that Hebrew uses, the sentence reads like this, And said the serpent to the woman, Not dying, die. Or in English, because we like to put in extra words to make sense of it, not dying one, you shall die. This is because of the way that Hebrew uses repetition to intensify a verb. So the verb for dying is repeated after being negated, as in no die, die. We read it as surely you shall not die, where we've replaced the repetition with an intensifier like surely, and rearranged the terms for English grammar. So just as a bit of a reminder, the Masoretic text is a really late text, which is closer to a medieval rabbinic context than anything actually written in the Hebrew Bible itself. It dates to around the 9th to 11th centuries after Christ. The idea of the Masoretic text was to preserve the Hebrew text as it had been traditionally read throughout the centuries, including additional notations that helped the reader to pronounce and even to sing the scriptures according to the tradition of the Masoretes. You have to be careful when you read the Masoretic text or translations based heavily on it, because there was a tendency to smooth over some of the theology that made Jews in the medieval period uneasy. I'm not saying throw it out by any means, because it is still widely regarded as highly authoritative. But it's this kind of tinkering that shows the hand of the Masoretes. According to the reading preserved in this text, the serpent addresses his human counterpart as an immortal being, he is basically pronouncing the fate of the woman by stating that she will lose her immortality if she has anything to do with the forbidden fruit. Now we've already talked about the mortality of the humans in the garden. We understood that the tree of life provided a source of longevity for the humans in that it was proximity to the creator himself that would ensure long life for his faithful image bearers. Remember also that we talked about the man having been created from the dust of the ground outside the Garden of Eden. And we talked about the nature of dust and how it conveys the common experience of ordinary humans, in particular the connection to mortality and death. So it should be already clear from what we've studied so far that the man and his wife were not under the illusion that they had attained immortality. And I don't think that it serves the purpose of the serpent to address them as though they had, because then he has less to offer them. Nevertheless, this reading remains popular among many Christian groups that teach the concept that the man and the woman were originally created as divine beings, who lost that divine status and were transformed into mortal human forms as a punishment for their transgression. I think we've demonstrated from our reading of the text so far 
and in particular if you've been following with us from season one, it should be clear enough that this idea of humans being created immortal is simply not supported by the text. So getting back to the reading, I think we're better off reading this as you shall not surely die, or as some versions have it, you are not doomed to die. And given that the woman has shifted the focus from eating the fruit to touching the fruit, the serpent is within his rights to refute her statement and declare that she will not die as a result of merely touching the forbidden fruit. But this is where he begins to twist the truth and play on the woman's resentment by giving her an indication that she might be missing out on more than just an ordinary snack or a helpful word of advice. So is this the fall of the first divine rebel? I would suggest to you that we're on it right now. God knows, said the serpent, that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be open and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. We have some interesting idioms at play here which make this statement a little more complex than it may first appear. There's nothing too difficult to understand if we're prepared to simply apply the biblical use of these expressions the same way that we would in other biblical narratives. And once again, it's time for me to remind our listeners that I'm not the only author in the room because my good friend Chris here has also written a book, which is a collection of witty and comedic short writings called Beautiful Nonsense. And one of my personal favourites in the book is called The Idiom Preservation Society. I like to bring it up whenever we talk about idioms here on the program. You can get his book on Amazon. Uh, you're far too kind. Thank you, kind sir. So, uh, yes, if you just search for my name, Chris with a K, Baver, uh, you'll find uh, Beautiful Nonsense on Amazon. Thanks for the plug. No worries. The first one is fairly straightforward. When the serpent says, in the day that you eat of it, it is a reference to time. You can read this as, at the time that you eat of it. So the concern here is not on a 24-hour period of alternating light and darkness, which is what we call a day. It just means, at the time when you do this, this is what will happen. So what is going to happen? The expression, your eyes will be opened, is a curious one. Throughout scripture... The use of this expression to open someone's eyes is used to refer to a kind of sight that is given by God. Sometimes it is natural sight restored by miraculous means, but other times it is a special kind of sight in a prophetic sense, or perhaps the ability to see into the unseen realm. But we're not talking about simply looking down and realising that you've got nothing on. So we're not talking about x-ray vision like my favourite hero Superman? Well, I guess if God wanted you to have x-ray vision, he could do that and it would be still called opening your eyes, but somehow I don't think that that's what the author was thinking of. So what the serpent is offering here is some kind of divine insight, and we talked about that when we discussed the name of the serpent, the Nakash, which means something like diviner. He's telling the woman that if she participates in what this particular tree is offering, she will achieve a level of insight reserved for divine beings. This is hidden, forbidden knowledge. And apparently God knows about it, but it's been keeping it from them. So what about this part where it says you shall be like gods with a small g? Some versions have God, big G, and some have gods. So what's, what's happening with that? I think where you find the singular God there, it's an attempt to reinforce the monotheistic theology of traditional Jewish and Christian beliefs. And Jewish interpreters may even read this as an expression of the singular nature of God which is a denial of early Israelite theology that affirmed the existence of Yahweh in at least two forms, one tangible and one invisible. Never mind your standard Trinitarian theology that the Christians emphasize, but as we study the scriptures, we find more and more instances where the Bible itself affirms that other gods do indeed exist. And we've talked extensively about that over the course of this podcast over the last couple of seasons. The fact that the word Elohim is a plural form that can refer to the one creator of the universe as God 
does not mean that it cannot be read as a plural referring to the lesser gods. It's the grammatical context of each instance that's going to inform you as to how it is to be read. And grammatically, the construction of this entire sentence features plural language throughout, so it would seem only appropriate that the interpretation remains consistent and reflects God's plural rather than capital G God. When we read the plural gods there, we find that it makes a lot more sense of the statement, especially when contrasted against the Masoretic construction that we looked at earlier. It makes no sense for the serpent to refer to the woman as a not-dying being, only to say that they both shall die, but then turn around and say that when they both eat the fruit, they both will be like one God. I think that it makes a lot more sense to read this as the serpent telling the humans that if they eat this fruit, they will see what divine beings see and gain the knowledge that only the gods possess. And that knowledge is, of course, the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about that expression in another episode last season and explained how the Bible uses knowledge of good and evil to describe a kind of wisdom and discernment that comes from a great maturity or supreme intellect. It's the kind of wisdom that's required to be able to make good judgments. Knowing good and evil is almost synonymous with knowing everything or having a kind of general knowledge. It's knowing enough to be able to pass judgments and pronounce destinies. It's actually not much of a stretch to suggest that the knowledge of good and evil may have a very close association with the serpent in a similar way to how we look at the tree of life and proximity to it to be connected with the divine presence of God. And that connection becomes clearer in Ezekiel 28, where the prophet describes the divine rebel as being perfect in wisdom. You might remember in the earlier episode about the trees, which I referred to a moment ago, that Chris asked the question of why the bad guy is not described as a tree, but instead as a serpent. And as I said before, uh, my response to that was that the author wants to use the specific imagery that is brought to mind by the use of serpent or nachash in order to tell us about the function of this creature in the text as a diviner, because that's an image that does not come through in the symbolic use of tree imagery. Right, these are just metaphors. You don't have to stick with one. You can use more than one if it serves your purpose. So the appeal of this fruit, as presented by the serpent, is that even the pronouncement by God of a potential destiny when he says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, even that could be overturned by somebody who has this divine knowledge. And the serpent presents himself as the purveyor of this divine knowledge by revealing to the humans what they will gain if they take it. Indeed, having such wisdom could negate the need to return to the tree of life and set one free from dependence on God to determine one's own destiny and no more prohibitions or rules. But we'll get into what appeals to the woman when we return next week for another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Well, that was uh, pretty uh, epic as usual. I hadn't heard of some of those uh, apocryphal books that you, you were reading and mentioning, but I can see how they help to develop the ideas that Paul uses in the New Testament, particularly uh, in Romans chapter 5. Yeah, that's right. Many people today are critical of Paul and accuse him of inventing novelties without precedent, but... As we've been able to show so far in the podcast, everything that Paul presents to his audience is not only consistent with Jewish theology, it's consistent with the right view of the function and the person of Jesus Christ. And that means that our understanding of these early chapters of Genesis does not jeopardize the role of Jesus in securing both our salvation from the wrath to come and the promise of everlasting life in the presence of God. In fact, those Second Temple period authors even made a point that it was faithfulness to God and belief in him and his work that would secure that glorious destiny. I want to hear your giant questions. 
if you have questions about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay, let's move on to some giant questions. We've got two questions this week, which we will cover briefly because the questions have been coming in thick and fast. So thank you for all those who have been sending them in. Uh, And all of these questions were submitted in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook. And if you want to be a part of that awesome community, you can just search for it and join. Or you can just go directly to the website, giantanswers.com, and submit your question there. The first question comes from Jeremiah, who asked about the Battle of the Nine Kings in Genesis 14 with regard to the significance of the location of Mount Sinai. Okay, well, this question is a really interesting one, so thanks for asking, Jeremiah. I guess we'll start by reading Genesis 14 to get a feel for the location of this epic battle, just as far as verse 18. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedalioma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalioma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalioma and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashroth Kanaim, the Zazim in Ham, the Emim in Shabai Kiriatayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Ketalioma king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalioma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Okay, so to summarise what's going on here, we have the first four kings in the list who are Mesopotamian kings. And they are chasing after the kings of the five cities of the plain, which is an area alongside the Dead Sea. Basically, they haven't been paying their bills and the Mesopotamians are looking to bust a few kneecaps and get their money back. 
The Mesopotamians attack from the north, so they are the northern forces in this battle, and that makes the inhabitants of the plain the southern forces. Abram's nephew Lot had moved to Sodom and got tangled up in this battle, which is, of course, what sparks Abram's interest in joining the fight. So Abram's got to go and rescue him and get them all back home safely. Now, you probably picked up on some of the names and places as we read through the passage and recognized some references to the giants. So these Mesopotamians took on the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Canaim. These are the giants that would later confront Moses and Joshua prior to the entry of Israel into Canaan under Og of Bashan. Then they fought the Zazim in Ham, another one of the giant tribes, along with the Emim in Shaveh Kiriataim. Then we get some groups that are not spoken of as exclusively comprised of giants, but certainly known to have giants within those populations. And we have the Horites in Seir, and the Amalekites, and also the Amorites. I cover all these groups and what the Bible tells us about them in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, in a lot more detail than what we have time for here. So this is just what these Mesopotamian kings did to the people on their way to the battle with the five kings of the plain. They fought their way through six different giant clans just to come down and collect taxation from this southern coalition. And having defeated the five kings, they turn back and start heading home northward along the western side of the Dead Sea. Abram's living in Canaan at the time, so he pursues them with his private army of servants from his household, and they chase them down at the northern border of Canaan. Abram wins the battle and takes out the Mesopotamian kings while rescuing his nephew with all his stuff. Now, I won't go into the alleged historicity or otherwise of this narrative, because for every point of data that we think we have, there's a refutation offered somewhere. And part of that is the same reason why I didn't bother trying to show historical artefacts proving the existence of giants in my book. Basically, if you can show something that is central to the biblical narrative and provide irrefutable proof, then you've given unbelievers nowhere to hide from the truth. So they'll fight tooth and nail to make any evidence of the Bible look dodgy and unreliable. It gets to the point where you're better off just accepting the story as narrative rather than trying to deal with claims and counterclaims concerning historicity. At the end of the day, we're judged by our faith, not by what we could prove scientifically. Anyway, the point of this question is the location of the battle, or perhaps the people involved in the battle, with relation to the location of Mount Sinai, and if there was some kind of significance attached to any correlation that might exist. Now, I've mentioned before that getting a definitive location on Mount Sinai is probably just as difficult as nailing down an exact location for the Garden of Eden. But just in general terms, we can be sure that the sacred mountain of God at this time was located in the wilderness east of the Dead Sea, and how far south you might go is anyone's guess. But if you don't pick a location as you go, you'll end up in the Red Sea. Now, this is not going to be the episode where I tell you that I found the exact location of Mount Sinai, and to be honest, I don't care if you think you have, because as we learned when we studied the location of Eden in last series, in last season's series on that, Sacred mountains can be pretty much anywhere you want them to be. I mentioned that last week. You don't even need a mountain. So it's no surprise to me that throughout the story of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, there are numerous encounters with Mount Sinai, and all of them feature inconsistent geographical information that you can't reconcile into a single neat narrative or plot with a single point on a map. And I think it was Dr. Michael Heiser who said something to the effect that if anyone thinks they've nailed down the location of Sinai, they're just not taking all of the data into account. Okay, so where does that leave us? So what we have then is a mountain that seems to be rarely in the same place twice. If you don't believe me, sit down with a map and see if you can plot all of the points and arrive at a single location.
and there are literally dozens of scriptures that you could be looking up to try and identify the location of Sinai. Sounds uh, like a fool's errand to me. There's certainly plenty of people have committed themselves to the task, and so far none of them have succeeded. People have gone mad trying to work this out. So what does this have to do with the Battle of Nine Kings, anyway? Well, that's the real question, isn't it? As far as overlap is concerned between the two ideas, there are a couple of geographical points, namely Mount Seir and Kadesh. But two data points in isolation isn't enough to provide any kind of a pattern. Geographically speaking, if we survey the possible locations of Sinai and put them against the region described in the Battle of Nine Kings, we find that, again, there's very little overlap. Abram's involvement in the battle occurs late in the story and much further northward than any proposed location of Sinai that I've ever seen. So I think we're going to struggle to find any real connection here. But I guess we could speak in general terms and say that the Battle of Nine Kings resulted in the defeat of several giant clans that may have been active in the region of Sinai. Even so, we'd be forced to invent something to attribute any real significance to that scenario because the elapsed time between Abram and the Exodus means that there's no chronological overlap or even any kind of relationship within the lifetime of any person who was there at either event. It'd be nice to be able to show, for example, that the location of Mount Sinai moved with the people as they travelled from one place to another and encountered the sacred mountains of other people groups and tribes, particularly the giant clans. But we just don't have enough information to be able to say that. It'd be nice to be able to say that the defeat of the giant clans by the Mesopotamian coalition had paved the way providentially for the manifestation of God at holy sites throughout the region. And while it may be true that the route of the Exodus went through many of these regions and was no doubt made easier by a weakened presence of the giants at the time, I'd be hesitant to look too closely at the theological implications of the biblical text showing Mesopotamian victories that paved the way for the God of Israel to pass through, because I think that sends a message that Yahweh would be nothing without Marduk. So if anybody has any information on this or thinks I might have missed something, please feel free to drop me a line, but I'm fairly confident that the two concepts of the Battle of Nine Kings and the location of Mount Sinai are not expressly connected in Scripture, and therefore we can't really say anything about the significance of one with relation to the other. I'll admit it's a really interesting idea, especially considering there is a little overlap in some places between the giant clans involved in the battle and the location of Sinai. But unfortunately, there's just not enough that we can make anything meaningful from. And in that case, we're better off not making affirmations about it. All right, well, that certainly was a, a very interesting, but we'll leave it there because we have another question to tackle. And it feels like ages since we did more than one question on the show. Yeah, I think it has been. Okay, so this next question comes from Pete. And as I mentioned before, this was a question that he raised in the discussion group on Facebook. By the way, I think it's really cool that we're able to tackle two questions this week instead of one. Yeah, well, that's the benefit of being forced to isolate for a week and having lots of time to write. <laughs> Excellent. I love your positive attitude. Um, so Pete asks, what about the mythological theory of Lot's wife and the discussion around her, where geologists have said that Lot's wife did not appear to turn into a pillar of salt because she dared to look back, but because of the briny nature of the Dead Sea? where research suggests it was more likely a case of mistaken identity, that the Dead Sea is full of salt flows that might have been thrown up by surging water to resemble a female outline. Hence, legend is created out of what can possibly be explained as a simple geological phenomenon. Interesting. Okay, so while we're still in the Dead Sea region and talking about biblical problems that are almost impossible to solve, here we go again. 
Well, we might all be familiar with the story of Lot's wife, but I'll read the passage anyway just for the sake of people who are driving or hanging laundry or something and not sitting down reading the Bible. So this is Genesis 19 from verse 13. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Okay, so I guess we should start with the historicity of the person known as Lot's wife. The Bible does not name her, but there are some extra-biblical traditions that identify her by the name Edith. According to the scripture, she has at least half a dozen relatives that are mentioned in other parts of Genesis, in addition to the two daughters that she had by her husband Lot. She's also referred to in the Deuterocanonical book, The Wisdom of Solomon, in chapter 10. And I'll give you a few verses here from Chapter 10, verses 6 to 8. Wisdom rescued a righteous man when the ungodly were perishing. He escaped the fire that descended on the five cities. Evidence of their wickedness still remains, a continually smoking wasteland, plants bearing fruit that does not ripen, and a pillar of salt standing as a monument to an unbelieving soul. For because they passed wisdom by, they not only were hindered from recognizing the good, but also left for mankind a reminder of their folly, so that their failures could never go unnoticed. And of course, she's mentioned in the New Testament as well. Here's Luke 17, verses 26 to 33. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulphur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it.
So there we have a couple of references to Lot's wife, which we derive from the original source material in Genesis 19. In both instances, her story is used as a cautionary tale. So I think it's clear enough from the biblical evidence that she really existed. The next question is, what happened to her? The story gives us the impression that she was lingering some distance behind the fleeing family. We don't know how far back she was. The Sunday school flannel graph of this story always depicts her as being just a little way behind the group. But it could have been miles. They were travelling to another city. So is it possible that when the family turned to look for their mother, they couldn't find her? But when they saw a pillar of salt standing there on the plain, they made the connection and assumed that she had been transformed as a result of the destruction of Sodom. I wonder who'd believe it if you told anyone that this had happened to your own family. I think even in the ancient world you'd be met with a reasonable degree of scepticism. I think if your own wife suddenly disappeared from view and couldn't be seen, even after the initial haste of evading the destruction, wouldn't you go back and look for her afterwards? I mean, this guy Lot doesn't seem to be morally perfect or anything, but I really can't imagine him just being like, oh, where did my wife go? All I can see is a pillar of salt. Well, that must be her then. Okay, moving on. I mean, he was obviously concerned about the rest of his family escaping from Sodom, so I'm sure that it meant enough for him to make sure that his wife got out too. So I find the whole mistaken identity idea a bit hard to swallow. To me, it kind of smells a bit like ancient people were dum-dums and they thought that any rock that looked like a person must have been their dead wife. And that, that would make ancient people as stupid as some modern people. So, if we're going to assume that she was a real person, and something happened to her that resulted in her becoming a pillar of salt, as the plain text of scripture says, then how do we understand what happened? So if we go back to Pete's original question, he talks about the briny nature of the Dead Sea, and how it wouldn't be uncommon to find salt residues built up over many years along the shore of the Dead Sea as a result of surging waves washing up on the shore. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the idea of possibly mistaking one for your wife to be a bit of a stretch. More so because running away from Sodom would require running inland, away from the sea, and not along the shore where you would expect those deposits to be found. But maybe there's something to the idea of Dead Sea salt finding its way further inland than anyone might reasonably expect. 30th of June, 1908. We're in Tunguska, in Russia. It's a typical summer morning. Suddenly a meteor enters the Earth's atmosphere approaching from the east. Comprised of a conglomerate of small stone pieces, the meteorite reacts to the atmosphere and explodes with the force of a 12 megaton bomb high up in the atmosphere. The meteorite, originally 50 metres or more in diameter, is instantly reduced to millions of fragments of burning hot projectile shrapnel. The blast decimated over 800 square miles of forest, destroying buildings and wiping out some 80 million trees flattened by the force of the explosion. Three deaths were reported, but fortunately the area was sparsely populated. This kind of event is generally classified as a meteoric airburst and is considered an impact even though the meteorite did not strike the Earth directly and left no impact crater behind. The Tunguska event may be the largest impact event on Earth in recorded history, although of course there have been bigger meteorite impacts in prehistoric times but perhaps there was another similar event in our early recorded history. What I'm about to read to you is the extract from a scientific paper that was published in 2021 in the journal Scientific Reports, volume 11, article number 18632. So you can look that up if you want. The team that put this together is comprised of some 20 plus contributors. So I'm not going to read them all, but you can certainly search for this article online and check it out for yourself. Quote, 
We present evidence that in circa 1650 BCE, some 3,600 years ago, a cosmic airburst destroyed Tol El Hammam, a Middle Bronze Age city in the southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. The proposed airburst was larger than the 1908 explosion over Tunguska in Russia, where a roughly 50 metre wide bolide detonated with around a thousand times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. A city-wide, roughly 1.5 metre thick carbon and ash-rich destruction layer contains peak concentrations of shocked quartz, melted pottery and mud bricks, diamond-like carbon, soot, iron and silicon-rich spherules, calcium carbonate spherules from melted plaster, and melted platinum, iridium, nickel, gold, silver, zircon, chromite and quartz. Heating experiments indicate temperatures exceeded 2,000 degrees Celsius. Amid city-wide devastation, the airburst demolished 12-plus metres of the four- to five-storey palace complex and the massive four-metre-thick mudbrick rampart, while causing extreme disarticulation and skeletal fragmentation in nearby humans. An airburst-related influx of salt, roughly 4% volume by weight, produced hypersalinity, inhibited agriculture and caused a three to six hundred year long abandonment of roughly 120 regional settlements within a radius larger than 25 kilometres. Tol El Hammam may be the second oldest city town destroyed by a cosmic airburst or impact after Abu Huraira in Syria and possibly the earliest site with an oral tradition that was written down and that's a reference to the book of Genesis. Tunguska-scale airbursts can devastate entire cities and regions and thus pose a severe modern-day hazard. And that's the end of the quote. It's now believed that the city found to be destroyed as a result of this impact event, known today as Tol El Hammam, is actually the site of the biblical city of Sodom. Now, some people have pushed back against this theory on the basis of some technical objections. I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to push this as a fact, but it certainly does join a lot of dots and explain a lot of data, so I like it. So we get this massive high-altitude explosion over the Dead Sea. The result is tons of burning hot rocks and minerals falling from the sky, destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The airburst forces a massive tsunami of superheated salt water up out of the Dead Sea, sweeping across the plains of Moab and devastating everything in its wake. Remember the words of Lot when he spoke about being swept away in the destruction. Remember in the story of Genesis how Abraham and his nephew Lot parted ways because their flocks were getting too large and the land could not sustain both of them. And Lot looked at this area around Sodom and saw how lush and green and well watered it was and even compared it to the Garden of Eden and he chose it for himself. Now you fast forward to the Exodus and we find that the region is a barren wasteland with nothing growing for miles except acacia trees. That's why they had to build everything for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant from acacia wood. As it turns out, the acacia thrives in that environment because it tolerates very high salinity. That is interesting and pretty cool. Notice also as we read the account of the wilderness wanderings, the little town sites destroyed and deserted such as Ai Arvarim, which translates as the ruins of the travellers. Interesting. So this Dead Sea airburst event accounts for so many things in the biblical record could it also account for the story of lot's wife well for one thing it explains why the angels were in such a hurry that they ended up physically dragging lot and his family out of town 
they knew that this thing was coming and they couldn't hold it back. It also accounts for how so much salt could find its way so far inland from the Dead Sea shores. And it presents the possibility that Lot's wife may have become suddenly encased in a layer of superheated brine, killing her instantly. It would have dried quickly, possibly leaving her bodily form recognisable. So that explains why the members of Lot's family were able to recognise her and understand what had happened to her. And it does justice to the text, which says plainly that she became a pillar of salt. But I wouldn't expect that one could just wander out in the desert and expect to find her body still standing. The harsh desert conditions that followed would certainly have contributed to the erosion of this morbid monument, and any organic matter remaining would have been quickly discovered by foraging animals. You'll note that the story does not say something like, and the pillar is still there to this day. Like you get in some other parts of scripture, even though you do get that in the Apocrypha, like in the Book of Wisdom that I read earlier. So that's a bit of a theory in what actually happened, but the thrust of Pete's question has more to do with the idea of whether this was just a natural phenomenon or it was actually the hand of God at work. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose the question for us then is, do we have to make a choice? On the one hand, we have a naturally occurring event which is scientifically verifiable and fits the narrative really well. On the other hand, we have this catastrophic event described as an act of God, complete with angelic messengers taking part and people getting what they deserved as a result right down to the last detail, which is, of course, Lot's wife becoming a memorial of the fate that befalls the worldly. Now, we've been dealing with mythic history from day one on this podcast, and one thing that we've learned is that for ancient people, there was no distinction between natural and supernatural. If a natural phenomenon occurs, it's because divine powers were at work behind the scenes and made it happen. So, given that in the mind of the author, there was no distinction between the two possible interpretations of the event itself, we're forced to consider the question I just raised, which is, do we really have to choose between one interpretation or the other? And the answer is no, it's both. Did Lot's wife become a pillar of salt because she looked back, or because she did not get out of the blast radius? The answer to that one is yes. And no doubt, that's going to lead to more questions, like, so what happens if the people inside them were really good and not evil? Because this meteor was probably hurtling through space for thousands of years and was always going to collide with the Earth right there and then, if that's how we understand the nature of the universe. And that's going to lead into discussions on foreknowledge and predestination and all that kind of thing. Oh boy, I'm not ready for that. Thankfully, we're out of time. Uh, no time for any more such questions, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for all your questions. See you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you, Tim. Yeah, I'm out of here. See you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, 
please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yes, this is good. This is how you get books written. Yeah. You do. Sickness equals productivity. Right. Um, now, you said there was two questions, but yes. I can't find any. You mean questions for me? Because I haven't found any, but I haven't read the whole thing. Well, the Q&A thing is in the normal place at the end. Oh, I thought you meant questions for me. You're like, you know, like, what do you reckon, Chris? And I was like, oh, great, I've got to do research. Okay. I'm glad I came in here a little bit earlier to set up. There was a um, redback spider making a web under my chair. <laughs> Put the little bugger in the act and I set him on fire. That'll do it. Yep. That's how I handle things around here. All right, the kids better watch out then. Hmm. <laughs> We need to be content to let the literacy speak to us. Yeah, good look at that. Mm, better. Uh, COVID, good times. <clears throat> a city-wide, roughly one point thick metre thick. Uh. I heard about ten percent of that, but um, I'm sure it was about your computer. We did it. Ooh. You struggled. We did it. And you, oh. you, you emerged victorious. Yeah, I never had so much drama. Yeah, yeah. Well, Having the uh, computer crash a couple of times. And... Do your best Chris impression. No, oh, no, it is long. <laughs> it's long. I mean, what have you? What are you doing to me? Oh, this TLDR, is what Tim. This is what happens when I'm in quarantine and I've got time to write. Each of us has become our own Adam. Each of us has become our own Adam. Each of us has become our own Adam. Each of us has become...